So we are uh, starting a brand new series. Can anybody guess the name of it? It's called Neon. Thank you, Brent. Neon, the idea of the series Neon is a Hot Topics, Bold Answers. And it's kind of funny, um, ironic is a better word to say, that today's topic is actually death. And you sit there and you go, we just did baby dedication and you're talking about death. Um, To which I would say, yes, we are. Continue if you could make room in the middle. There's still more people coming in, but great, great problems to have. But here's the reason why we need to talk about it, because death is inevitable in life. You may not realize that, but it is. I've obviously done quite a few funerals now that I've been a pastor for several years. And, and I can tell you that the church doesn't always know how to handle it. In fact, what you find a lot of times in, in churches and, and in, in, anytime you go to a funeral home is you, you gather with the people and hear something that is said, we weren't expecting this. Whether they were 18 or 98, that's a very common answer. And what they're saying is we don't know how to, what, what we need to do next. And I think the church has to address this. We have to be able to talk about death. And we're going to do so in a couple of ways this morning. But I want to start by reading some ver- verses that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that I love to share regarding, the word, uh, regarding death. Here's what it says. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep or die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body, this body that will cease, must be clothed in incorruptibility, and the mortal must be clothed with immortality. And when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. In other words, this body one time will be before God. For the follower of Jesus, here's what he's saying. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting, for the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What a great passage. Death, where is your stink? I love that. I love that idea of this. And so there's a Christian perspective on dying. We're going to take this passage in two, two folds today, where the first part is dealing with your own death. And the second part I want to do is walking people who are going through death, because we talk about their death, where is your victory? And death, where is your sting? But here's something that you need to understand. Death still stings for those who are left behind. And you might sit there and go, we shouldn't. And the church doesn't know how to handle this because we say we're followers of Jesus. And and that's absolutely true. But death still does sting. So let's first tackle the perspective of your death. The idea of the Christian perspective on death and dying starts with this one essential truth. Christians have hope because of the empty tomb. Because there is an empty tomb, we have hope. In other words, Jesus came down and he lived a perfect life. And though 
he gave his life on the cross. If he gave his life on the cross and that was the end of the story, we would not have the authority to say that we are different. We would not have the authority to say that God is the real God because Jesus predicted and in fact foretold that he would be resurrected. And the fact that you cannot find his body and the fact that there is an empty tomb, the fact that Easter Sunday is not just a Sunday for the follower of Jesus, but it happens every single day is our source of hope is our source of strength, is our source to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Because if, as Andy Stanley says, if someone rises from the dead, I'm going to believe what they have to say. Can we get that? If someone predicts their own ascension from the grave and they do it, I think they should probably be believed. Now, some of you might go, well, how do we know this is true? Well, Jesus' death and resurrection is one of the most documented moments of ancient history. There is a great old classic book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And I would encourage you to read it if you're struggling with this. But here's one of the main points. Lee Strobel was an atheist who is a fact checker. And basically, he tried to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. And in doing so, he said the proof proves that he did. And so he became a follower of Jesus. In the process, you can see that most of the ancient wars that we have documentation about, most of the ancient problems that we had that happened 2,000 years ago, we are fortunate to have one source. It is an outstanding belief if you have two sources. The story of the New Testament resurrection of Jesus is not just found in the Bible, even though that's four or five sources. You look beyond that. There are tons of other sources. In fact, it is the most documented ancient history event we have. The history books all say that there was a man named Jesus. And I'll point to the fact that he is not in that tomb. History proves that we have the empty tomb. Jesus' death and resurrection is one of the most documented moments of history, but it's not only historically proven, it's relationally proven. You know how I know there is an empty tomb? Same way I know I'm married. And I've said this before, but I think it's a great illustration. Some of you are looking on the stage. You've done this before. You sit there and you thought to yourself, is this guy really married? I mean, he wears a wedding ring, but any old fool can go buy a wedding ring, right? He just wants us to think he's married because who would marry that guy? And I would go, you're right, except that I am. Now, you can take my word for it, I'm married. Or you cannot take my word for it that I'm married. But here's the reality. You can tell me I'm not married, or you can say that I am married. It doesn't change the fact. I am married. You know how I know I'm married? I live with her. She's in my house. She's in my life every moment of every day. And it's a good thing. I'm married because how do I know Jesus is alive? Is it because he's some Facebook friend of mine? No. Is he some distant thing that we encounter occasionally on Sunday? Is it because I have not? No, because Jesus lives with me. Because Jesus lives with me, I know that he is real. I know he's alive and present in my life. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But because we know Jesus arose from the dead, both historically and relationally, we know he is who he says he is, and we can believe all that he says. Now, this has huge implications for the way that we face death. Because Jesus says we should take the Bible seriously. And because we take the Bible seriously, we find in Revelation 20, 14 and 15 that heaven is real and so is hell. Death and Hades. We're thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Death and Hades were thrown. The lake of fire is hell, and it comes at a second death. You see, the reality is one of the things a former pastor of mine said was this. If you die twice, if you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born once, you'll die twice. In other words, you're born in this world, you're only born once, that when you die, your earthly body will cease to exist. The second death comes after you say, I don't know Jesus, and then you're forced to spend an eternity separated from God and hell. But if you are born twice, you will only die once. Born when you're birthed into this world and born into a new relationship with Jesus. This is where you get the old nomenclature, the old vocabulary term, the old word that people have heard in the church, born again. You can hear the deep southern twang in there, born again. And when you're born again, it's not a physical birth, because as it says in Nicodemus' life in John 3, it's not going back into the world, uh, going back into your mother's womb. That would be gross. It's actually saying that I am no longer living for me, but I'm coming into a new life, a life, a life with relationship with Jesus. And so this is found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have in eternal life. Now that's the verse you probably heard. But sometimes people sit there and go, how can a loving God allow people to be separated from him into an eternity of hell? Let me ask you this question. How can a loving God force you to love him? If I went to my wife and said, you don't have a choice. You have to marry me. You have to spend an eternity with me. You have to live in my house. You have to follow my rules, I would never do that, by the way. You have to do all these things and come to this understanding that what would it be like? Would that be a relationship? No, it's not a relationship. That is a forced something. That is slavery. That is a subject. That is not a relationship. God wants to be in a relationship with you. So he gives you the option to come into a relationship with him. John three seventeen. for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it or to force it to go to hell or to say you're bad, you miserable people, but rather to save the world through him. To save the world through him. So how are we saved? By receiving the gift of a relationship with Jesus. Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. In other words, our consequences of when we at some point did what we wanted to do, that, that thing is called sin, missing God's intention for our life. We walked away from our relationship with God, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So here's my question for you today, before we go any farther. Does Jesus live with you? Let me put it to you like this. A lot of times the church gets confused because they think they're you know why many people think the church is a miserable place to be? Because the church is full of people who know a lot about Jesus, but don't know Jesus. And then they wonder why their life isn't going like you think it should go. In other words, what would it look like if I were married, if I'd gone forward and I'd gone to my wife and I stood in front of the church, in front of everybody, as on our wedding day, and said, I now vow, commit, to, I'm going to live the rest of my life with you. And then I never moved in with her. 
We never lived in the same house. I saw her once a week on Sundays. How you doing? Good. We carry your name. Anything you need to check up in? Any prayer requests you want to give me? Or, you know, that's not a relationship. But I wonder how often we are fooled by the fact that if we walk down the aisle at six years old and we, we said a prayer, a vow, if you will, and said, yes, I am with God from now into an eternity, but we didn't let it change us. We didn't ever understood what it meant to allow Jesus to come into our life, to, to dwell with us, to, to walk with us, to be in his presence. I don't think that, that means... I think there's some dissonance there that we need to wrestle with. Because in order to truly be a follower of Jesus, Jesus has to dwell with you. So how do I accept Jesus into my life? It's really simple. You realize you need him, and you ask him to come in. Now, sometimes we do that through a prayer. That's a a prayer asking Jesus into our life. You don't have to do that, but it's a lot like the vows that we do on a wedding day. Jesus, I need you to come into my life. I'm I'm committing that I give you my life. It's the same idea. I'm going to now say, would you live with me from now into an eternity? And when you do that, it's the same kind of covenant relationship that you're saying on your wedding day. I am with you. I will be known by your name. I am now a Christian. I bear the name of Christ. I am a follower of Christ. And I will live with you now and into eternity. Now, the Bible says this is a gift. But you know what makes it be a gift? You have to take it. I started a little bit of a controversy on social media this week. I declared November 1st is Christmas season. Some of you did not like it. Let's hear it from the Christmas people. All right, Thanksgiving people, everybody yell, I'm a turkey. Ah, okay, so this idea of, if, the idea of Christmas, as we approach the Christmas season, I just want you to carry this illustration. If you were like, it's not Christmas season yet, okay, imagine this is a month from now. As we approach the Christmas season, let's say I gave my boys, I have two boys, the greatest Christmas gift that the world has ever known, and it's sitting there under the tree waiting for them to be opened, right? And Christmas rolls around, and, and they sit there, and they go, there's the gift. And I go, wait, wait, we're going to put it upstairs for next year. Not, it's not for this Christmas, it's down the road. And the next Christmas comes around and we, we take that same gift, we put it under the tree and we go, nope, not this year. I'm anticipation, we're, just think how much you're going to love this. As, and year after year comes by, we put it under the tree and then put it in the attic. And we put it under the tree and we put it under the attic. And then one day they die having never received that gift. Was that ever really a gift for them? No. In order to be a gift, it has to be open and received. So what Jesus did under the tree of the cross, which is some reason, some of the reason why we have a Christmas tree, is to remind us that the greatest gift we have ever been offered has to be opened and received in order to be received as a gift. Otherwise, it's just a present that's there waiting to be opened. So here's what you got to do. Take it. So sometimes we, we ask people to say a vow or a prayer or something like, Jesus, I need you to come into my life. And it has to be from your heart like you would on a wedding day. I'm, I'm committing to live with you from now. And, and you don't even have to know how it means. When I got married, I knew nothing about being a husband. 20 years in, I still know nothing about being a husband, but I'm trying to figure it out. 
And through grace and forgiveness and falling on my face, we figure it out together because that's what a relationship is. Unconditional love from now until death does us not part as it comes with Christ. So you don't have to get your life together, but you have to receive the gift. That's how you know how to handle death in your own life. Once you do that, Calvary's vision is followers making followers of Jesus. And by the way, if, you've, if you're ready to say that prayer, we have a great space for you, the next step space. You can fill out a connect card. You can go to calvarybc.net slash baptist and fill out the stuff there. And we're going to follow you up with that. I promise you we'll follow up with you because we want you to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, period. But let us know or let the person you know come who came with you because we want you to know the greatest gift. Why? Because our statement is followers making followers of Jesus. In other words, helping others to find the gift of a life with Christ. In other words, we serve as the e-harmony of the world. This is it. Everlasting love. Come on, people. Do you not watch TV? Everlasting love is not found in a him and a her. You think he's great? <laughs> you think she's great? No, let me show you the real great relationship you need. It's Jesus. And I'm here to hook you up with the greatest. Hook is not the right word. I should not have said that. I'm here to sponge that from the podcast. I'm here to match you up with the greatest God the world has ever known, the greatest relationship you can have, his name is Jesus. That's what we're about. When you do that, all of a sudden, the way the church approaches death becomes different. You know why we don't share the gift? Because we don't take death seriously. Because we think we have time to tell the neighbor, the brother, the stepdad. We think we might. But why would you wait to share the greatest gift the world has ever known? There will come a time, though, when they will cease. And if you're left behind, I want you to know it's not fun. Just because your person that you care about is partying with Jesus doesn't mean it's okay or easy for you. I, I go to funerals all the time. There's funerals I go to um, where the, we know the person's a follower of Jesus. And we go to funerals that are not near as fun and really kind of difficult for me where we don't think the person was a follower of Jesus. But you know the, different, the, the similarity in those? You have a grieving family either way. <laughs> How should the church respond in those situations? What's our goal? What's our responsibility? Well, let me give you a little bit of advice that I give every single person I know that first goes through this idea of death. Well-intentioned people will say stupid things to you because we don't know what to say. <laughs> so we go, hey, that person was a follower of Jesus. It's okay. Don't cry. Her husband just died. She should cry. It's okay to not be okay. Can we just give each other that freedom? It's okay to not be okay, even if the person was a follower of Jesus. They're okay. They're with God in heaven, but you're sad because the person you love is not here. It's okay to not be okay. We have to not make people feel guilty that they are grieving. We have to, we have to be able to walk people through their steps. And so let me just throw this overarching principle that you should practice when someone is grieving. Your presence is their greatest present. 
Let me say that again. Your presence is their greatest present. Sometimes the best thing you could do, I love Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. The rest of the book is just really sad and depressing. But Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 talks about that Job is one. is He's lost all of his family and friends. And Job at the end of that says, I don't know how to go on living, but God, you are still good. And in Job chapter 2, he goes, this still hurts. And his friends just come and sit with him. What are they saying? When they open their mouth later on in the book, you find that they shouldn't have been saying anything. The greatest thing they should have been done is just going, hey, I'm in your life. I'm going to help you through this, and when you need someone, I'll be there. That's what the church should be doing. But you know why we don't do it? Because we don't like to talk about death. And talking about death is the place where we come to the place where we're okay to say, baby dedication, we shouldn't talk about death on the day of baby dedication. How insensitive. No. From the time you were born, you were destined to die. Death needs to be a part of the conversation, but we point them to Jesus while walking them through the appropriate stages of grief. What are the stages of grief? This is not found in the Bible, but the Bible supports healthy psychology. So I want to share with you this. Seven stages of grief. This is a great thing to take a picture of. When someone is going through death or any big stage of grief, if you're going through divorce or if you're going through something like that, these are the seven stages that most people walk through. Let me give you a couple caveats to this. One, everyone handles this differently. Two, the stages can last a different period of time. Three, if you don't understand that, it's going to cause great dissension among your family and the people you love. Two sisters lose a mom. One of them goes through the stages much quicker than the other one. The other one gets mad that the other one is going at a different stage. They don't understand where they are. Tensions arise, and it creates more problems and more dynamics than you ever imagined. And so what I would say is recognize these. Let's walk through them real quickly together and so that you can know how to handle grief as it comes upon you. First, shock. Instant paralysis at hearing the bad news. When someone is going through shock, they usually do one of two things. They either are the person who likes comes in and it doesn't necessarily, you don't necessarily know how you're going to act until you're in the situation. Somebody sits there and goes, I'm going to take control. So they're in shock and they sit there and go, and they start barking out orders and they start going, okay, we got to plan the funeral. We got to do blah, 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 blah. But what are they trying to do? They're, they're saying, I don't know how to handle it. So I'm panicking. I'm going to go do this. The other one is the person whose mind just literally goes, I, I don't know what to do. And when I go to the hospital, or when I go to the funeral home, or when I encounter someone who's just lost a loved one face-to-face, -face, inevitably I get one of those two things. I, go, I get the person who's like all up in my Kool-Aid saying, this is what you need to be doing. Or I get the person who's sitting there going, tell me what to do, Pastor, because I don't know what I'm doing. And here's my advice to both of them. Breathe. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not know what you're going to need to do. We're going to take this one day at a time one hour at a time, one moment at a time, one breath at a time, and I am going to be there with you. Why? Because your presence is your greatest present. When someone is in shock, you don't need to help them get them buried. You need to just be there. I am going to get you through this. I am there if you need me. Breathe. We're going to take this together one step at a time. After the initial shock, denial. Denial is like, they're not really gone. 
Denial can be very quick. It can be very long. Um, denial is sometimes manifested in dreams that you think, sit there and you think, I'm going to wake up and he is going to still be there. I'm going to wake up and she is still going to be around. And, and denial inevitably with death is I don't want to admit that my life is about to change. So how do you handle that as a Christian walking people through that? You tell them, breathe. I'm going to get you through this. Don't worry, not all seven are the exact same, but these two are. Take it one moment at a time, one breath at a time. I am going to be there with you. Your presence is their greatest present. Do you see a theme here? Third, when they go to anger, as Christians, this is the one I would say that we have to really measure against. But anger is this idea of, I'm so mad that so-and-so died. Or we, we look for people to blame. If you only hadn't gotten in that car, if I hadn't planned this event, or if I hadn't done this, or if only I'd spent more time. And you don't know how to handle your emotions, so it bottles up because we as a church aren't able to listen like we should because they don't know how to handle it. And so it comes out geared at angry. And when someone gets angry at me because they're going through one of these seven stages, I sit there and I go, it's going to be okay. And we have hope in Jesus, but even though you're mad, I want you to know I love you. And we listen, let them vent, and then we go, okay, what's next? The fourth stage is bargaining. Seeking a way out. Bargaining is this idea of God. And this sounds funny, but it happens all the time. I would do anything if I could have that person back. You do realize they're not coming back, right? Or we start bargaining. God, if I could do this, would you, would you somehow change the situation? And that usually, this is usually the quickest stage, but not always. And, and what I would encourage you to understand that when our obligation as a person who's going with someone through bargaining is you don't sit there and try to logically explain why they're being irrational. <laughs> Husbands, do you hear that? All the wives said, Amen. The, go, the job you have there is listen and love. Fifth, depression. This is where a lot of, this is usually the longest stage, not always, but the longest stage. Depression is the final realization is inevitable. You know why depression really happens? Because after a week, your life and your world is still rocked on and the world keeps ticking and everybody else seems to have gone back to the normalcy. We don't understand that a lot of times this phase can last not only months, but well into a year or two years or three years. So let me give you a little advice. This is a little different, but if you really want to be a person who walks people through grief, death, and dying well, then when someone you know that is close to you passes away, their friends, their family, their spouse, here's what you do. You write down the day of their death, and you send yourself a reminder to send them a card in a year from now. You write down the day of their spouse's birthday, of their birthday, and you send them a card and say, I know that this birthday is probably difficult. I'm going to walk you through it. When Christmas and Thanksgiving uh, rolls around, if appropriate, you say, come on over to my house and have Christmas with me. And if you need to cry while you're at Christmas, it's okay. Can you smile some, but can you cry if you need to, right? Because we are going to get you through this because I care for you. And just sometimes feeling like the world hasn't moved on and forgotten their loved one and the understanding that grief takes time is the most healing thing we can do. Six, testing. This is when people start going, I wonder if it's okay to date again. 
I wonder if it's okay to, to think about having another child. I wonder if it's okay to whatever the situation be. They start testing. They start trying to reevaluate their life and going back into normalcy. And a lot of times, this is what we do as a church. We try to get them straight to stage six. You know, someone's like passing away and they're like, have you thought about dating? Whoa! Or God's going to work this out for your good. He will, but right now, can you just sit with me? And we, we want people to be happy. We want people filled with joy. So we push them right through stage six and we go, it's time to start testing your faith. And we just said, they're not there yet. You'll know they're there when they start asking questions about the normalcy of life. And they start, and what I would say to them is our job then is say, you know, it's okay to be happy. Because you can live for a season so sad and so down that sometimes we need somebody to say, it's okay to smile. It doesn't mean you've forgotten the love of the, the person you walk through. It's okay for that. And then finally, what ends up happening is acceptance. Acceptance is the place where you finally move forward. And it doesn't mean that you've accepted it. It, it, it does mean you've accepted it, but it doesn't mean you learned 10 years ago this week. I watched as two of my students passed away on the side of a road. Every November of this time of year, November 7th, I, I write these words, hope still guides me because it was four words that meant a lot to me at that time. I don't expect any of you to understand that because you weren't there. But I've never moved on. I've never forgotten I've learned to accept. And one of the most difficult moments of my life where I went through those seven stages, I remember thinking if I hadn't planned the stupid retreat, they wouldn't be dead. I remember grieving and I remember going, God, why couldn't it have been me instead of them? And I remember going through those things and going, is it okay to smile again? I just, I do, am I not honoring their life by doing that? Is it okay to get back into work? And I remember being angry. I remember going through all of those. And you know what I needed at that time? I needed someone just to go, breathe. We're going to get you through this. So we're not doing a Monday morning application. We're doing a what's next. Because the Monday morning application seems too quick. For this series. So what's next is this. We want you to take death seriously. And as you take death seriously, I want you to make sure you know where you'll spend in eternity. Do you? Because you have to receive the gift in order to have it. It's not go by the next step space on the way out. Second, walk with others through their grief. Listen Love and be present. Your presence is their greatest present. Did y'all get that? Third, take seriously your own grief and get help if needed. I needed to. I went to a counselor after that one. We have Wellspring and other communities that can help you if you need it. But take it seriously because you're going to have to go through those stages. You can't will yourself through those seven steps in an hour. You just can't. But fourth, Here's what the joy of being a follower of Jesus. Claim the promises of our hope through Jesus. Because <laughs> here's the cool part. If you are a follower of Jesus, death has been defeated. And you're able to come and rejoice in the moments where you're still grieving. The Bible says we rejoice with those that rejoice and we grieve with those that grieve. We mourn with those that mourn. 
we're able to still claim the victory and claim that death has been arrested and that my life has begun, not in the next life, but here and now, because Jesus is alive in me. I was born once, and I, I was born twice, and so I'm only going to die once, because death has been defeated. I don't know about you, that's, a, that's almost like we're a little whoop. <laughs> death has been defeated. And so here is the joy. Listen to the verses as we're about to rejoice with that through singing, death has been arrested and my life began because the grace has come to us. Our freedom is found. And we therefore can say these words, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your labor in the Lord is helping other people see their victory through the cross. The greatest Christmas present the world has ever known, the presence of God in our life. Death has been arrested.